0: So I had a message uh, prepared for Sunday that I ended up scrapping this morning. I woke up about just before 5 and I was praying and uh, I had a message that was way too long but, it, but I didn't know if I wanted to do it in two parts but then I had to break it up. Sent the first part to Josh Spidell last night and he was kind enough to put him on slides for me because uh, I thought, man, if I want to cover this much ground, I'm going to need some slides because if we're turning back and forth. Or if I'm just reading them, it's going to a lot of it's just going to, you know, not sink in. And so Josh did that, and that was great. So that was ready this mo- uh, this morning when I got up, I saw that uh, he had sent me an example of it. So I'll be we'll be getting back to that because that's the beginning. That's part of the beginning of Revelation chapter 21, but uh, verse one. We just finished. Well, we thought we finished chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, which is. The sixth major chunk of Revelation, there's a seventh coming, which begins in Revelation chapter 21. And, uh, and I was real excited about that message. And I have another thing that I prepared years ago that I was going to share, in, that I decided to share in Revelation 21 verse 1 as well, because it's when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. And I never had done this for the fellowship, but I went and debated, along with Rich Cromwick, we had debated a uh, uh, Ventura skeptics, a bunch of atheists. Organization, uh, I think Sunny Siano. Sunny here. Sunny, didn't you set that up, bro? Yeah, I did. Okay, Sunny set that up. That was nice of you, bro. <laughs> We're in the hot seat over there on their turf. Went really well though, and I had a slide presentation that I also used when I after we'd built that slide presentation, I, I built it with different things I wanted to share. I spoke at a uh, not skeptic conference, but at a sermon conference in Canada that I've been invited to a few times and. I did that presentation there, but I'd never done it for the fellowship, but it's a really powerful presentation on creation, and since we're talking about the new creation, I thought I would do that as well. So I actually have, because I broke the other one in two, like three messages ready, other than what I'm preaching for verse one, but it was just on my heart to, uh, as I continue to pray about it, and I wanted to do the creation one first before I did the other one that I gave Josh, but... uh, (laughs) Tony and Josh we were really busy this morning, so I couldn't get my slideshow because it was on my laptop, uh, so I was trying to get it from Tony, so I kept praying, and there's different messages I work on all the time, so I always have these, you could call them backup messages, but they're not backup messages for me, they're just things that are in my heart that I may or may not preach sometime, so I continued to pray, and I thought, man, I've got three messages loaded for verse one when we get to Revelation 21. Uh, one's not in the chamber yet, so that one's not loaded, uh, but two, that one's in a... In, in slide form, I still got to get back from Tony. But, uh, so I have three basically done. But this one I want to share with you because I want to look at the end of verse 21 again. But look at it from a different angle. The end of verse, uh, chapter 20, the end verse 15 of Revelation. But look at it from a different angle with you. Because that's, that is intended to be a very, very uh, foreboding passage. I mean, because you are suspended, by the way, and this kind of, it sets up what comes up, because if you go to chapter 20, verse 11, he says, I saw a great white throne, and he was sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So that, heaven and earth, you know, they, they flee away, they're, they're not found anymore. Then if you skip four or five verses, then you chapter 21, verse 1, then I saw what? A new heaven and a new earth. And that's one that I've, actually, it could be four, four I've got done because I did a two-part thing for the uh, discernment conference uh, on creation. And I've got those two other messages I just split in two. Uh, on, and I'll probably do two or three on creation. So we haven't done anything on creation in a long time. And that's obviously attacked, you know, a lot. Because people want to believe that we are our own gods and they don't want to believe we're accountable to the creator, even though the evidence screams at us day and night. And from the heavens, from the microscope, from just our bare eyes, from the things we see around us. Uh, but then you have this new heaven, new earth created. And the old one passed away. Uh, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, you know, coming down out of heaven. And two of the messages are basically based on New Jerusalem. And then chapter 21 and chapter 22 have a lot to do with New Jerusalem. Which, anybody ever watch those? TV shows where they have home building and renovating homes or new homes. And, you know, those are real popular today. Well, you guys have the most incredible home possibly that can possibly be made by God himself. And you have a picture of it explained in some detail in chapter 21 and 22 of the book Revelation. And it blows away a million houses that you see put together, put together in a big one mansion. I mean, what we're going to be reading about, and that's your future destiny and it's not that far away because our lives are vapors, okay? And we're supposed to live for that kingdom ultimately, amen? We got to live here, but we set our hope in heaven, amen? And put our, our affections, to supposed to set on things above. And Jesus said, don't treasure, uh, build up your treasures on earth, but where moth, you know, you can eat away and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and thieves don't break in and steal, amen? So we want to remain, remain eternally minded, recognizing we will stand before God, amen? doesn't matter, I mean, it doesn't mean does, God doesn't bless you here to a degree. Obviously, he loves us. We're his kids. So I'm looking forward to getting into those chapters because it's really exciting when you look at, it's like, wow, it's going to be, it's hard to even imagine. You think of your most exhilarating times when you had such a sense of transcendence in sensing the transcendence of God in whether it's a sunset or a sunrise or a landscape or a seascape or a lightning storm or whatever, just blown away, Right. And uh, that just is a little taste, a little taste of, little tiny, minute taste of what's to come on a momentary basis in the kingdom of God when we are in the eternal kingdom. So I'm excited to study the last two chapters. And the whole Bible ends that way with, you know, we ride off with the Lord happily ever after for sure, you know. But there's some bad news too. And right now we're in a mission field and we have to extract the lost from the fire. We're called the Jude as missionaries to snatch people out of the fire. And chapter 20 lets us know that a lot of people aren't going there, going to make it. In verse uh, 12 after verse 11, we read verse 11 it says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. So the, the, the wicked deeds are written down. And so forth. People are judged from them. And they, they don't, people don't suffer any more than what they deserve. They're judged according to their deeds. Uh, so God is perfectly just. Uh, but of course, he's more than just. He's merciful. So sometimes it's like, you know, when Jesus gives that parable of the people that show up to, that get work from a certain, at the vineyard at certain times. And the landowner hires them and says, I'll pay you this amount of money, right? You know? And they work and work and work all day. And they get what they you know, they said they, you know, they agreed to, to get. But then some, he picks up other laborers. You know, you ever see laborers waiting on the side of the road? Sometimes if, you, if you're up in the morning, you, you shop or whatever, you're going down the street. Sometimes they're just waiting for someone to pick them up. Well, that was in those days too. To have Pickup trucks and stuff. Laborers are hired later in the day. And then some are hired at the last hour. And he pays, and he pays the first workers what they were, said they would get. He was just and fair. But you know what? He sees these other laborers. He said, you know what? I'm going to bless them, man. They were waiting around. And I'm going to send them home with a full day's wages and bless them. And the first workers get all ticked off at him. Hey, how come you gave them so much stuff? And he says, is your eye evil because I'm good? He gave them exactly what he said he would give them. Amen. But then he blesses the other ones because he's good. He wants to bless them too. And we have to watch because we're like that sometimes. But be careful because we're the last hour worker. That's us. We, we don't get what we deserve. We deserve his wrath, amen? And he gave us grace, right? Uh, so, but some people reject that grace, and that's where they end up and in, in the lake of fire, ultimately. Verse 14, then, the, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So it's interesting. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. Remember, Hades is not what we... Often people call hell today where the rich man went, for instance, in Luke 16, uh, the proper term is Hades, Sheol, okay, he's in the underworld, it's a place of despair, sadness, he's in torment in the flame, he can communicate though, Uh, he's sad, have Lazarus dip his finger in water, bring it to me, but it's more, as we say, like the county jail, he hasn't been sentenced yet, people in Hades haven't been sentenced yet, then there's a great white throne judgment, so you have Christ's return in Revelation 19 when he comes back. He sets up his 1,000-year reign, and we reign with Christ for a 1,000 years in Jerusalem. Amen? After that 1,000 years, Satan is let loose for a short time, but we're already in resurrected bodies re- re- uh, reigning with Christ. And he, as the sand of the sea, those who have uh, basically repopulated the earth after the judgment, the rebels that don't come to the Lord, some will, go against Jerusalem. The Father destroys them with fire. Then guess what happens after that? This great white throne judgment. In between the old creation, heaven, earth, passing away and, in, and the new heaven, new earth being made. In between, there's this parenthetical judgment at the great white throne. It's like, that's all you see existing other than God's obviously, he exists everywhere. And uh, there it is. And then there's the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 21 and the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, 1,500 miles approximately wide, both ways. 1,500 miles high, okay? Uh, I mean, I don't know, I mean... I don't think it has elevators. I think you just, just fly around, man, you know? And it's going to be pretty awesome. But verse 15, anyone's name, which was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the final. That's like the, not the state prison or the state j- or county jail. That's the federal penitentiary, so to speak, the eternal abode of the wicked lake of fire. And we know in Revelation 20, verse 10, go ahead and look at that. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist the false prophet, they're thrown in the lake of fire right at Christ's second coming. First two thrown in the lake of fire. They don't even get a trial because everybody's seen what's happened. And the Bible often reveals the book of Revelation is the, open, is the most radical, I believe, theodicy ever written. Defense of God's character, righteousness. Over and over again, it proclaims how those who see from heavenly eyes and see from his eyes that God's judgments are righteous and true. And uh, the books are open. Everything's by the book. And these guys are thrown like a lake of fire because guess what? Everybody's, their, their crimes against God and humanity were demonstrable. You know, it's not like Hitler would have needed actually a trial if he lived, right? You know, <laughs> they executed, nobody would complain, you know. But these guys, it's even more obvious because heaven bears witness and God's witness is the greatest. And, but... There will be a trial we will stand. We'll stand before God when Jesus comes, but we won't be condemned. We'll be rewarded for the good things we've done in Christ. We'll lose rewards for the bad things we did. That, you find that in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, and elsewhere. But after that thousand years at the great way throne throw Germans, the wicked will be thrown into the lake of fire. But uh, certain people, I wanted to look at this because I want to expand a little bit on God's grace in the midst of all of this. Because... It's a choice that people make. Anybody that's in hell, they're basically choosing, ultimately, this is what hell is, a lake of fire. Hades is the first spot. Anybody that's there in the end are those who've chosen to be there. Those who are with the Lord, they're there by his grace and through Christ's gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, amen. And those who are there are the ones who've humbled themselves and admitted they can't earn heaven, and they say, not my will, but your will be done. Those in hell are the ones who say, not your will, but my will be done. They want to do their own will. They want to be their own gods, but they're not God, and it's heartbreaking. Well, Judas, uh, and what happens is, whenever anybody who's in sin or in rebellion is there as a result of having idols, typically, whether it's idol of self, in the last days it says, which were in those days, men, we lovers of self, isn't that plentiful today, right? Uh, you know, the whole woke crowd, oh, we're woke, you know, we're about social justice, but it's okay to kill millions and millions of babies, the most innocent people on the planet. Just save the trees so I can build my little heaven on earth, you know? It's just ridiculous. It's so obvious to those who have eyes to see that this world is so backwards, you know? Obama just came out and rebuked the, the far-left woke crowd recently. Uh, just came out. I was like, oh, he did. Really? He said, you guys need to quit trying to find, you know, fault in everybody else. You know, we're going too far with this. And these are a lot of his, his children, by the way, you know, uh, you know figuratively speaking. He said, you can't expect everybody. So a lot of conservatives are like, yeah, great. Look, he he spoke against the woke crowd saying that they're, because they're seeking perfection. He said, you guys, everybody can't be perfect. Look how he's casting that. No, the issue is not about them having a perfect view of life, like killing babies and murdering babies is perfect, right? Transgenderism and erasing genders and stuff is perfect. No, uh, if he would have said, you know, people have different opinions, you know, We need to be respectful of each other's opinions. But he held up his view and their view as perfection, you know. And there is a problem. Uh, Only God brings ultimate perfection, amen? Amen. And it's only through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a lot of folks. Judas, the Bible says, went to his own place. Uh, He went, well, in John 17, or I should say in Acts 125, when they're replacing Judas uh, and choosing somebody, quote, Verse 25, to take part in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, Judas fell away, that he might might go to his own place. The Bible doesn't just teach that there's a special place called the lake of fire in a bad way. It talks about different degrees of punishment. Jesus said there are those who are worthy of worse stripes, worse beatings, and they will be cut in pieces, thrown with the unbelievers. Uh, Of worse punishment, it talks about, in, in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31 than what happened to them under, the, under Moses. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, he also talks about how there'll be worse punishment as well for the wicked. Certain apostates he's talking about there. There's different degrees of punishment too because look, it says you'll be judged according to your works. Some people have more evil deeds than others, you know? So some people, some Christians are fond of saying, well, you know, every sin is alike. It's all the same. It's taking a paperclip, does that mean taking a paperclip from work, which is still a sin, stealing if you're stealing it, right? You're not allowed to take it. That's as worse as being a serial killer, as bad as being a serial killer? No. The Bible talks about Ezekiel sees certain abominations and the Lord says, let me show you greater abominations. What they're confusing is the Bible does talk about how all sin breaks the moral law of God. So if you're being held up by the Ten Commandments, which we can't be saved by God's commandments, saved by the blood of Christ, but if you're trying to keep his Ten Commandments as a Jew... You break, and it's like each commandment represents a chain. doesn't matter which one you break, that chain breaks, amen? And you're going to hell. You need to be saved, amen? So all sins are the same in that respect, that we all deserve hell, amen? But there are greater crimes. And Judas, it says, went to his own place. And in John 17, 12, Jesus is praying for the apostles. And he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I've guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scripture may be fulfilled. So Judas was lost, and he called, he's called the son of destruction. He went to his own place. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 26, verse 24, that uh, it would have been good that th- for that man of Judas, he's speaking, that he had never been born, okay? Doesn't mean that was good for God's ultimate plan of redemption and to have his bride, but as far as Judas was concerned, bad deal there. Judas betrayed the Messiah for money, and those who are greedy, uh, false teachers and so forth, Second Peter 2 Peter 2.17 says, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I like the ESV there because it's really picturesque. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's, that's heartbreaking. Now, there's something heavy to learn from Judas's life and from Jesus' love. Uh, when you look at them in contrast to one another and the choices that you and I are faced with as, as Christians. And if you're not a Christian, as a human being. Because you see, Judas, he was chosen by Jesus as one of the 12. Jesus didn't make a mistake, okay? He had perfect foreknowledge. He knew that Judas would be the type of guy who would harden his heart when he saw that Jesus wasn't taking over from the Romans, which was never the plan, amen? Jesus came to die for our sins, Amen. He saw, he knew, he knew that Jesus, Judas would respond and that Judas would try to get something out of it since he knew that Jesus would, the Romans uh, and the Jews would come, upon, come down upon Jesus and it was starting to accelerate and Jesus didn't, wasn't forming an army, you know? Telling them not to resist evil and so forth. So what's going on here? So it's interesting that uh, Judas, I'm gonna get something out of this. And he betrays him and he was pilfering from the money bag. And then, because he was a treasure. And then he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And the difference between Peter and Judas, because Peter denied the Lord three times, but he repented. His heart, he, you know, he saw Jesus and he wept bitterly. He was so in pain because of what he did to Jesus. And he repented and he got right. Where Judas, he didn't go back to God. He threw the money at the priest. He had remorse, but not repentance, not metanoia, not a change of heart and a change of mind regarding his sin, rebellion, and turning back to God. And instead, he went out, and we're told that he hung himself. After he threw the coins, he hung himself. And apparently, either a limb limb broke in which his rope was tied, or the rope broke. We're not told which, but he fell down uh, in the canyon area of the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, it's also called. And his guts, his stomach burst open. And a, a brutal, brutal death. And the priest took the money that had belonged to Judas that they gave him. And they really couldn't take it back because technically it had belonged to Judas, right? Do you remember what field they, brought, they bought? What was it called? Do you remember what it's called? It That's right. I heard a couple of different names. Heard Potter's Field, which is too, true. And you called it Hakodama? Right, bro. Uh, which you're right as well, because it was the Potter's Field. But then the name Hakeldama, by the way, that you're using the Arabic word. That's pretty good at you. That's pretty knowledgeable, bro. Uh, was is uh, is the Arabic word for uh, field of blood, or bloody field, or bloody dirt. It can be translated either way. So uh, because it was also called, uh, you know, field of blood in Arabic later, but and it was also called, by the way, Matthew says it was called the field of blood. They started calling it field of blood. After the reputation got out that the money that Judas used to betray Jesus, innocent blood was used to buy that field. By the way, that field is where Judas fell into, okay, where he hung himself off the tree and hit, and hit the rocks and right there by Hinnom, the valley Hinnom. So it's interesting when you think about it, uh, kind of as a double entendre, you know, because it could be called the field of blood because... Judas hanging himself there, or because he betrayed innocent blood, and the money used to betray innocent blood was used to purchase the field, the potter's field. But I was always intrigued for years, and I love these little things that intrigue you about the Bible. I was always said there's something going on there that's called the potter's field. And the Lord's the potter, right? Ultimately. But this was a potter's field where they would discard Old pots, broken pots, just throw them there, what have you. Now this is bought because it's kind of a ruined field. You can't really plant much there and grow it. You know, there's a bunch of just pottery, broken up pottery. that has been there for years and years and years and years. And it's also by the garbage dump, you know. It stinks, you know, at that time. Because prior to that time, if you're in Israel, and I hope someday you can go on an Israel trip with us, you know, uh, because... And we look to, to be going. I don't know when we're going to going. I mentioned it last week. We're going to definitely try to go again because people are coming up to me. But we just went not too long ago. But right now, if you're not vaccinated, you really can't go. So we're going to see what happens uh, in the next couple of years or so. But when you go there and you are in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, and these, you've, got, you've got olive trees that are like, not like the redwoods or the, you know, the uh, sequoias, but they're thick. I mean, you know, from me to Mark, thick. I mean, they're way out there. You know ten ten, twelve they've been there, some believe some of those trees have been there some say in the time of Christ, some of those were there, uh, but most agree now the most of the a lot of the oldest ones maybe they 've been there for sixteen seventeen hundred years we don't know exactly they've been there a long time, but if you're when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus took his disciples, and you look across you you see the temple mount with the dome of the rock, and the mosque the Muslim buildings that are just you know defiling the temple area, and you see the western wall and you know It's just amazing. You can't see all of that from there, but you can see the Temple Mount for sure and uh, a lot of it. And in between you and them is this this valley. It looks like you can walk across it in 20 minutes or something. Probably take an hour and a half. I don't know how long it takes. But you're seeing this huge canyon that you have. It's right below it. You're just looking across it. You're right next to it. You're on the other side of it. Well, that was called. That's the area. And maybe one time, we haven't done this, maybe we'll go to the Field of Blood. You know, maybe we'll go to Akeldama. We'll go to the Field of Blood and. And and check it out, you know, because you can do that as part of your tour. But it's interesting because that valley, keep in mind, it has this rich history. It's interesting that that Judas is buried there. And it's a potter's field that's there. Because it's all related to this passage, Lake of Fire, right here. You see, years and years ago, uh, during the reign, when Judah, before Judah went into exile, Judah was a southern kingdom. Judah and Benjamin were the two tribes that had the southern kingdom. The 10 tribes that had the northern kingdom had gone to exile 150 years earlier under the Assyrians. But before Judah went into exile because of their sin and, and then began returning to land later, and Jeremiah and, and so forth are prophesying Judah, or I should say Ezekiel to Judah, and their sins are even worse than, than the northern kingdoms, their sister, the 10 tribes. Uh, at that time, you had these very, very wicked kings. And you had wicked kings that just... Uh, they were sacrificing their children to the demon gods, to like, for instance, Baal, for instance, Baal, okay? And you had these, like Manasseh, the king even, he sacrificed, he was into sorcery, the scriptures tell us, into witchcraft, into eat, working with demons, and he sacrificed some of his children, his, his children to the, to Baal, or to Baal, in that valley, which was the Valley of Hinnom, Okay? You had a lot of human sacrifices going on. And that's one of the reasons the Lord says, when I bring you to the land, which I'm going to give you, you should not learn to do after the nations of, not, to do after the wicked nations that I'm dispossessing, that I'm driving out from the land, the Canaanites. And one of the things they were doing, he says, you shall not be a medium or a wizard or seek, seek a wiz, wizard or a medium. You shall not cause your sons to pass through the fire, sacrifice. Well, they're doing all that. So God says, you're out of there. You're leaving the valley of him. And he brought, the, he brought the Babylonians in to discipline them so what happened is, it beca- it was, then it was changed to the, from Valley of to Valley of the Slaughter, it began, began to be called. The Valley of Slaughter. Because kids were being slaughtered there. And then when Israel came back into the land, guess what it, the name began to be called? It beca- be, began to be called, well, eventually in Jesus' day, it beca- became Gehenna. But prior to Jesus' day, it had already become a huge garbage dump. They said, you know, this place has horrible, wicked memories. So it became the valley of sewage. It was for the sewage of Israel and it was for the garbage of Israel. And that was the garbage dump. You know, you ever see garbage dumps in a certain place? They try to put them in like canyons, you know. If you got a canyon, if you don't have a canyon, it's a little hard to deal with because that at least blocks some of the stench. They just bury it, right? So it's quite interesting, the history there, because this all ties to the bigger story. And through the years, I was trying to figure it out, and I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but I feel like uh, I have a, the pieces fit for me very well. So it's interesting, because in the passage, you could go to Second Chronicles 33, 9, by the way, where you see Manasseh uh, of Judah, he, where he practiced sorcery, and he sacrificed his children to, to Baal and so forth. And it's interesting, because it became this incredible, you know, the Valley Hinnom became uh, known as the Valley of Sewage, as I mentioned, or the Valley of the Pagans. Then they changed the name to Gehenna. In Jesus' day, the Greek name being used was Gehenna, okay? And it became, Gehenna became a great, so you talk about the valley there was a great picture of hell because what was constantly coming up from that valley? Smoke, right? Continually. And there were, what do you think was all around the dead animals the refuse the sewage the all kinds of worms okay maggots and worms and so jesus used gehenna you know he says better to have your you know right hand you cut off your hand and enter heaven maimed than go with your whole body into gehenna and he used that term gehenna as a picture of the place where there's no end to the smoke and the worm does not die as jesus said a place of hell. So it's right in this area that the potter's field was. And it's right in this area where Judas not only hung himself, but we don't know that Judas was buried there. The text doesn't say. Some people think he was buried there. We can't say for sure. But guess what? It became a burial place for strangers. So even to this day, it's a cemetery now. Nobody would build their houses in this huge field. Even to this day, even the Muslims call it cursed. In fact, the Arabs, the Muslim Arabs use that same word, Hakodema, because it's a bloody field. That's the words they use. So even to this day, you'll see there's not homes on it, you know. Uh, so it's very, very interesting. So I want to kind of like get into this a little bit with you. I know we're already getting into it, right? It's already getting a little deep. But it, it becomes quite fascinating to me because... You see, there's this fascinating thing about land, field. Right now, the hottest piece of real estate on the planet that's the most disputed is where? Jerusalem and Israel. And this is in Jerusalem, right? Was outside the old city, you know? But if you go to Jerusalem today, and you know, quite amazing when you think about it. It was on the southern, western, you know, area of, the, of uh, Jerusalem. But what's interesting is, that's a very debated field. Who whose whose land is it? Whose land is it? You know, and you know we can sh- see where uh, we, we just had a message on Israel, so I'm not going to go through all that a few weeks ago uh, when rockets were they just stopped firing rockets, Hamas did into Israel, and we had a. If you didn't see that message or hear that message, go ahead and check that out because we go through a, a lot of scripture, but it's very very interesting because God from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, it's quite interesting. The last two chapters that we're going to study after this this last verse we've been on—it basically, it's mind-blowing because when you go through Revelation two and three, it's the letters to the churches and a lot of the problems that are in the churches and with promises if they're for the overcomers in those churches. When you go through Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two, the last two chapters, it's like the opposite, and it shows the church perfected now and those who've inherited the promises versus those who were discarded because they rejected the Messiah and didn't become overcomers, didn't continue the faith, went to go to the lake of fire. But even more, it's even so much more impressive than just that because the last few chapters of Revelation tie up what? The first few what? Chapters in Genesis. No more death, no more curse, no more pain, right? No more mourning. The tree of life, they have access to all that and it's just so beautiful, I mean, and the, what blows me away, keep in mind, this is over 40 books right here, okay? Over 40 authors, I should say. Over 40 different authors wrote these books. 66 books. Unless you count the Psalms the way they're counted by the Jews as five different books, then you have 70 books. I like that, you know? But it's interesting because from Genesis to Revelation, it's one story, even though these 40 plus authors wrote in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and were fishermen to kings and everything else, right? And wrote over a 1,500-year span of time, yet it's like a hand in the glove. Because they were, they were it's God breathe, 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 you know? Theonustas, breathed by God. Uh, and these prophets were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And you look at it, and it's the only book that just pff, hits you. Words from it, pff, you know, hit you so powerfully. I was talking to someone who recently opened his heart to the Lord, and he said he kept getting Bible verses on this app because of uh, his brother who encouraged him to start getting the Bible a bit. And, and he's like, and I couldn't believe it, how much these verses would hit me. It's like everything I was going through, every day I would open it, was like, what in the world? He thought it's he's looking around like this is someone playing a joke on me. And I said, because it's the word of God, <laughs> you know, it penetrates the heart. You can't do that. Even with Shakespeare, you read Shakespeare, it's like, oh, It's interesting. But God's word is sharper than two-edged sword, amen? It's So powerful. Now, it's interesting how it just all fits together. But when you look at what's going on here, there's some very, very interesting background to this because you remember the law of the kinsman redeemer because that field of blood, that's a field for strangers. That's for burying strangers. But you know, Jesus is all about reaching strangers. So who knows all the unnamed people that are buried there? And who knows how many of them will be resurrected to life? God knows. In Leviticus chapter 25 and 27, you have the law of the Goel, you have the law of the kinsman redeemer. And uh, some of you, we've studied this before, but the law of the kinsman redeemer is really fascinating because considering yourself in in a really bad problem where you're in a situation where you live in a country and you've either your husband died. And you have no way to make money and you're losing your, you lose your land, you know, because it couldn't, you you think it, you know, paid off or you just don't have control over it anymore or, or you just simply lose your land because you just don't have the money or what have you and, or war, you can lose your land in war or what have you and then you can reclaim, then the land is reclaimed but guess what, you're not a, or it's not you that owns it, it was your uncle that owned it or, but. You can't have it because there's no record of that or what have you. There was these laws put in place where, just like there's laws even in our country, which are basically sometimes threatened, where family members can benefit from the wealth of their family members, right? Inheritance laws and so forth. Well, those were basically like inheritance laws, but they were laws that protected family members. So they weren't left destitute. And the law of the Redeemer, the kinsman, the Redeemer, uh, the Old Testament, was where the nearest relative, your nearest relative could claim, if you died, could claim your land. So your, you know, someone, your child or whoever. uh, And the kinsman, it gets a little more technical than that though because the kinsman redeemer was the one who was given the rights that was nearest of kin to act legally on behalf of land that had been lost to regain that land or regain, for instance, a servant. You know, it worked in different ways. So it's, it's quite interesting. And their duty of, the duty of the Goel was to uh, save or to redeem uh, a relative who had been sold into slavery. So you could actually take a, a relative, let's say, who in in, had gone into slavery because they were an indentured servant. And they owed all kinds of money. They couldn't pay it back. So an indentured servant, that's how you'd pay it back. But the relative could go and say, hey, I want to redeem them from... From, from that situation. So it's quite interesting because we have this story in the book of Ruth. The entire book of Ruth is about this. And you remember the kinsman redeemer there. You remember Naomi and she had a couple sons and they marry a couple gals, right? And, uh, well, one of them is Ruth and then there's famine. They take off. They come back to Israel, come back to Jerusalem, which is interesting. And, now she just has her widowed daughters because her sons are dead and they have no means. And she's lost her husband too, by the way. So they're all widows now and destitute. And there were some welfare laws that God, and, and praise God, we need to be compassionate as, as Christians, you know. Sometimes, if, you got to be very careful when you align yourself. And I'm very, very conservative, but I don't align myself with all, every aspect of What's known as popular, or popular conservatism, because Christians should be the most merciful people on the planet, Amen. But we should also, be, we're also about responsibility, Amen. Bible says they don't work. come up Christians and they're leeching off the church. They refuse to it says they will not work. They will not. Not that they can't, but they will not. Don't let them eat either. So the, God teaches responsibility. But the Lord had a law where, because He is gracious, where if you had fields, the food that fell off your trees. And was ripened, and oftentimes it would go to waste. The poor could come and partake of it. So Naomi tells her daughter-in-law Ruth, to go into that field and glean from it. And there's a rich man there named Boaz. He's a little bit older than her. and she's gleaning, and he takes notice of her. Well, Naomi says that he is a kinsman. He is a near relative to Naomi's husband who had died. He's a kinsman redeemer. And she says, go to him. And and he took notice of her, okay? And she was upstanding. In fact, he says, and this is a lot of, this in chapter four of the book of Ruth. He says, you know, to her that you are an upstanding, everybody knows you're a woman of excellence, right? So she comes to him at night. And she lays at his feet. And she puts, as some translations call it, the skirt or others, the garment You know, others, the the cover over her from his feet. And it was a picture of the fact that he had the responsibility to, he didn't have to because there are other, other, other kinsmen, but he should enact the responsibility of redeeming her. But guess what? There was land involved. His brother had land and he'd have to also acquire the land. Well, he had already had land. He didn't necessarily need land. Did he want that? And what's, it's very fascinating because there's no, uh, some say, oh, maybe that's where they consummated the relationship and had sex. I don't think so because he talks about how he will go to the elders, you know, and he'll d- deal with this, you know, in the morning. And she goes to his feet, you know, and puts the cover over him as though he's to cover her, take care of her. But, but there's a problem because Boaz actually is attracted to her. And he commends her, goes you could have went after the younger men and what have you but you came to me and he said you know what let me work this out and he finds out that there's a nearer kinsman to her to to his brother who had died than himself it doesn't tell us his feelings part of me thinks he's like bummer you know because you get the idea that he loves her you know it's, it's a love story after all and but it works out where that brother didn't want it maybe the land was considered worthless that's what I'm, i start to think you know and he enacts the law of the kinsman redeemer. He buys the land to get Ruth, amen? So he redeems the land because he's got the right to because he's the next in line as a kinsman redeemer. Really fascinating stuff. And that's what the book's about. And by the way, what was his name, by the way? starts Boaz, right? Anybody know what his name means? It means pillar, you know? We got a couple pillars right in here, right? Sometimes the guys with the cameras or whatever, you know, have to configure that. But we thank God for pillars, amen? They hold things up. Well, Boaz is the daddy of Jesse. Jesse, who comes from Jesse? King David. Who comes from King David in Jerusalem? Or Bethlehem, actually. Jesus. Born in Bethlehem. But it's interesting. This is a picture, guys, right? Why is this book in the Bible? And all this is super profound when you realize the Jews don't even understand these books. The ultimate, what's ultimately what's going on? That's a picture of Messiah. You know, that's the blow of mine when you read these stories. I did a, uh, I think it was twelve wedding portraits of Christ and His Bride for Cross TV years and years ago. They flew from Florida. They told me they sold their souls this is like the thing that's having the greatest impact in their whole TV production. Uh, uh, company, but also a broadcasting company, and they said we want to whatever you want to do it on. I did a whole thing on uh, twelve or thirteen studies on portraits of Christ and His Bride, and Bo- Ruth and Boaz were. I should get that out because some people just took that up and we lost the videos for some time. I think we've got them again. I don't even know if they work though. You know, and one sister was taking, she wanted to transcribe them, turn them into like a book. But Boaz and Ruth were. Uh, it's a great love story, but Boaz is a picture of who? Christ. Who's Ruth a picture of? Us. By the way, Ruth is not a Jew. She's a Moabite. She's a what? A Gentile. That was showing that God was not interested in just the Jews, but his bride becomes, is a Gentile. Amen. There's a lot going on there. There's so much going on there. But guess what? We have a problem because you and I, we have this sin problem. Amen. If we're honest. Every one of us comes short of God's glory. There's been times when we've had impure thoughts. There's been times in our past where we've acted on impure thoughts, whether it has to do with anger, whether it has to do with lust, whether it has to do with just pure selfishness, whether it has to do with uh, greed, whether it has to do with uh, inconsideration of others, uh, hatred, unforgiveness, things like that. And every single person here is honest says all, all of sin and comes short of the glory of God. If you think you're without sin, stand up right now and leave. Hannah? <laughs> Hannah's my niece. I'm messing with you, Hannah. You know that. I love you, honey. <laughs> Two of you got up at the same time. I don't God bless Sister. <laughs> I'm just playing with you guys. She's waving goodbye. Maybe she no, good. She's she's humble gal. They're both humble. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway. So we all have this problem, sin problem, right? We're all lost. We're all broken pottery. See where this is going. We're all, you know, like Judas, destined for (laughs) Gehenna. Destined for the lake of fire, apart from his grace, amen? We need a kinsman redeemer. But guess what? Why? Because the Bible says no one can redeem his brother. It says, no one can ransom his brother for the soul is costly. I don't have enough money to redeem any of you guys. Not even close. Not even a hair on your head. And I can't do with my own life because I'm what? Don't say it so strongly, Jim. (laughs) Jim knows my past, you know. (laughs) Uh, So, I can't redeem you because I have my own sins. You can't redeem me. Now, I suppose if you were absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect, you never sinned, you could, God could allow you to give your life for one person, right? Because that's your value. We need someone who is perfect, and we're not perfect, we can't redeem one person, but who could redeem everybody. And who could do that? Only God. That's why God became a man, right, in the, as he became our kinsman redeemer. We read in Hebrews two fourteen and 15, therefore, since the children, God's children, share in flesh and blood, he himself, likewise, also partook of the same. Remember John chapter one, the gospel of John, the first couple of verses, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was beginning in the beginning with God. And nothing came into being but without, without him, Through him all things were made and nothing came to being but by him. And then the word, verse 12, verse 14, and the word became flesh, flesh, amen, and dwelt among us, amen. So therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Even Judas was... Radically enslaved to Satan. Satan possessed him when he went to betray Jesus, it says. Yeah? So it's interesting because Jesus, God becomes a man. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have the God-man. He comes to redeem us. Guess what? Judas hung on a tree. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Absalom... David's son betrayed David. Remember? David's a picture of Jesus. How did Absalom die? He got caught by his long, wonderful rock star hair, right? On a tree. Amen? David said, oh, Absalom, Absalom, if it could have just been me. Well, it wouldn't be him, but it would be the son of David. He saw... Good click right there. Fits. All of this fits. Always fits. P- Paul said, I wish I could be cursed for my kinsmen, right? Kinsmen. Isn't that interesting? I wish I could be cursed for, them, for my kinsmen. Romans 9, 10, 11. But he couldn't because he was a sinner himself. But he said he would if he could. That's, that, was, that was a heart of love God gave him. Amen. That's the kind of heart we want. We're all supposed to be made more and more like Jesus. But he had kinsmen, but he didn't have the power, the worth, the resources, the purity, the infiniteness, you know, the, the precious, sinless blood. But Jesus becomes a man. Boaz can redeem Ruth, or he can't really redeem, redeem her. He can redeem the land, amen, and purchase Ruth. In the Old Testament, you know, the word for dowry there. It's a different word, which we'll get into in another message coming up pretty soon. Because we're talking about the bride, New Jerusalem, like a bride. It's all a love story, guys. Okay? Revelation 21 and 22. We're all part of this incredible love story. It's so magnificent. Hollywood can't touch it. And here we talk about it every time we get together in some way. We've been redeemed, you know? And it's interesting, uh, the word for that's translated, you know, that we would, you know, mohar, or another word, actually, that was like mohar. Mohar was your dowry in Hebrew is another word that's related to that would, I had to do with, you know, a wife was, the word for wife even. The word husband meant owner or master. The word Hebrew word for wife meant the one who has been purchased. Pretty heavy, you know? It's a picture of us. Ruth was literally purchased in a way. But not for eternity, not from her sin. That's a problem that we all have. Now, it's interesting because Ruth was A foreigner. What did the field of blood that was purchased with the money, which betrayed innocent blood, it was the potter's field, but it became a burial place for who? Strangers. When you go there to this day, it's still known as that. This was where they buried the foreigners. Ruth was a foreigner. Ephesians two nineteen, when it talks about our redemption, says consequently you are no longer foreigners. Speaking of us Gentile believers, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people, meaning with the Jews, and also members of his household. Amen? Ruth became a member of Naomi's household, but the Moabites were cursed because their sin was particularly wicked, if you know the story. I don't want to get into it all, but it goes way back to Lot and his daughters and for ten generations and so forth. And it says, and forever. Wait a minute! How could she be redeemed? How could they were cursed under the law? Right? <laughs> Amen. Another good click. Okay, bro, I like you in the front rows, man. So thanks for visiting all the way from San Jose. I think that's like four or five hours away. And this this brother is so awesome. We love you, Israel. I told, I said during the he, he can't see with his physical eyes, but he sees more than just about anybody with his spiritual eyes. I've only been a Christian for a few years, four or five years or so, and just loves Jesus so much and. Knows the scripture really well. We love you, Israel. God's, Lord's awesome, amen. Thanks for visiting us, bro. So it's interesting, when Jesus uh, dies for the sins of the world, he then, in chapter 27 of Matthew, the next chapter, you see him resurrected and going and telling his disciples to go into all the world, preach gospel to all the nations, amen, because he died for everyone. And it's interesting because Deuteronomy is the scripture that says, curse everyone who dies upon a tree. And it's interesting because listen to what it says of Jesus in Galatians 3.13, what the Apostle Paul wrote. Christ redeemed us from the what? Curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on, who hanged on a tree. Amen. When Jesus was on the cross, he was fulfilling that passage for each and every one of us. Now, how in the world could he do this? It gets heavier. Now, remember, we started with how... The Valley of Hinnom ended up becoming the Valley of Slaughter, right? And then the Valley of Sewage and Pagans to Gehenna, a picture of hell. That progression went through that. It started way back when Israel, who was brought into the Promised Land, which is a picture of being, of Eden being restored, being brought to this land of milk and honey, being restored to God in relationship with Him, and how God was the Redeemer, but he hadn't redeemed them yet with his own blood. He gave them these sacrifices that were all pictures, but animals could never take away their sins that he himself would have to do it. Well, they began to practice the very sins and the witchcraft, the human sacrifice that the nations around them did. God could just wipe everybody out like he did with the flood, which he didn't do everybody because guess what? We're all the sins of Noah, right? Is, but he didn't. He had a plan to bring them back in the land, even though they had been that wicked. So guess what? Because of their wickedness, they were dispersed. The Babylonians took them into Babylon. Some went up to Egypt because they, didn't, they rebelled against what the Lord said. The Lord said, you better submit to me. They didn't. And then they had some big problems. But Jews are all over the world now. Just like the scripture said, they'd be dis- dispersed. There'd be a diaspora around the world. But many of them come back. But right before they took off, right before the, the Babylonians took most of them out, look what happened in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah buys, or I should say, he acquires a piece of land. There's something heavy going on here. Jeremiah chapter 32. These things are here because God wants us to know them. These things are written in Scripture because God wants you to understand them. And you know what? God has me sitting down, even though I wasn't planning on sitting down today. And I'm going probably slower than normal. And I think that's good for this type of message because I had a shorter message than normal as well. And... I want you to go to Jeremiah 32. Are you with me so far? Yes. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 32. Let's pick it up at verse four. Jeremiah 32, verse four. This is before they're gonna go into Babylon, after all the wickedness that they had been practicing. And verse four, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he will speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. Okay, now, this is, you know, being reiterated to Jeremiah about what he said the Lord had said. And he will take Zedekiah, verse five, to Babylon, and he will, uh, will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. Verse six, and Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, so it's his uncle's son, his Kinsman, a kinsman of his. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is in Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Now, why does this seem like a bad deal? Come on, why would this seem like a bad deal? Because they're leaving. They're all going to Babylon, at least for, you know, for 70 years, it says, if you believe the prophet, Right? Doesn't sound like a good deal. Jeremiah, buy this land, you know. Your uncle wants to sell it to you. (laughs) Interesting. Then, Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court. This is a legal thing, by the way. A lot of people are getting away from the forensic aspect of Christ's atonement and and the whole legal aspect of the Bible, and that's such a shame because they're missing the the whole point of redemption and and how God is a just God and how they're... Just payments need to be made and so forth. Then Hadamel, my uncle's son, came to the court of the guard according to the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field, please, that is at at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession and the redemption is yours. Why does he have the right of redemption? Because he's what? He's a kinsman. In other words, guess what? When you come back, you can take the land legally because you're kin of my uncle's. Uh, then, he, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. When he realized it was tied to kinsmanship and be able to reacquire it in the future, and he knew the prophecy, they didn't know they'd be back in the land. They thought it be, Babylonians, it's a world empire. They could just take over. It's become part of their land forever as far as many of the rebellious Jews believed, right? But Jeremiah knows that God's hand is at work here and that the Jews would be back in the land, which they would be. Verse nine, I bought the field, which was at Anathoth, From Hanamel, my uncle's son. And I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase. Notice it says deeds, plural, right? Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. So what you'd have is you'd have a open copy which a third party, anybody could just read. Here's the deal that's been done. It was a public thing, you know? So you have the public disclosure of, of the seal, of the unsealed document. But you'd have a duplicate of that, which would be sealed. Who would own the sealed copy? That would be the person who had purchased it. So upon acquiring the field later, they could open up and show that it matched the other copy. Amen? So that's what's going on there. And I gave the deed of purchase to uh, Barak, the son of Neriah, the son of Maziah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of witnesses, and who signed the deed of purchase before the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. And I commanded Barak in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel take these deeds sealed ha, this the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in the earthenware jar that there that they may last a long time verse 15 for thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land thus saith the Lord by the way, did that happen? That was fulfilled later. Now, interesting. Very, very interesting. Such interesting stuff. So you have this field being acquired by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is doing this because he knows it's a sign from the Lord to say, hey, you'll be back in the land. This is my land. I'm letting them take it for a while, but I'm going to bring you back into the land. But there's a lot more going on because it's a picture of, Of what Jesus did. In fact, it's interesting. Look what the Lord says in verse 14 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed, of purchase, this open deed, and put them in what? An earthenware jar that they may last a long time. You have these words being put in a jar. Sound familiar? In a clay jar. Who does that make you think of? Come on, think. Well, ultimately, who is it? Jesus is, when it says he's God, he's the word. The word is logos. And that means message. He's the word. Okay. And he became what? Flesh. Why is Jesus becoming, and the Bible says that we are like earthen jars. Second Corinthians chapter four. That's what it says. We're like clay pots. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus, the word, became a clay pot. And now the living word, well, how does, what does that have to do with purchasing land and, and, and this kind of, well, everything, okay? Go to Revelation chapter five, Revelation chapter five, and when you get there, just go ahead and pick it up at verse one. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Ooh, there is a sealed book. This sealed book, if it could be opened, will be opened to take not a little bit of land in Israel by Jeremiah, but to take the land of Jerusalem, to take the land of Israel, to take the entire planet. And more than that, to take those who've been redeemed on planet earth by the word who was made flesh, the word, the Lagos, who became earthenware. And by the way, we continue to read. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book to break its seals. And this angel is like an officer of the court. Are you with me? It's like, a, it's a legal deal going on. This is, this is the odyssey, guys okay? Theodicy is the defense of God in his character, and his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness. And God is showing before all of creation, because Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? And Satan is the name devil. Satan means opposer, but the name devil, that's Satanus. Diablos, devil, means, means slanderer. He slanders God's name. God can just wipe him out, just be done with it, and just move on. No, but God wants to say, hey, let's see who is righteous here, because I could destroy him with raw power, but I want to show my righteousness and who I am before all the angels and all the people. Does that make sense? Okay, it's radical. And so this angel, a strong angel, like an officer of the court, because the father has the seal, right? His right hand. And the strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven. Wow, man, you have the holy angels in heaven. You have the cherubim in heaven. Amen. People like Hannah, my niece in heaven. You know? No, she's a, she just got up, not because she never sinned, but, but she's a really righteous gal. We love her a lot. She's a great example. Been a blessing to all of us. Uh, you have all these people in heaven. You have the saints, the, the, the saints of just men, uh, the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews chapter 12. So there's spirits of just men that are made perfect. They're perfect up there, but they're not worthy. Holy angels that have never sinned are not, are, are, are to. They, you don't even have any of these cherubim who say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. These super powerful angels who lead the worship in heaven. You don't have any of them saying, Ah, oh, not one of them says a word. And no one in heaven or on earth, no one on earth, you know? Not Gandhi, not Mother Teresa, not, and I'm not talking about who I acclaim as righteous, but who the world esteems as righteous. Or under the earth, no one under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Now, by the way, there is a sealed book and there is a duplicate, which is an open book. Now, the open book is in fragments throughout from Genesis' revelation of prophecies, all about the coming Messiah, about God's judgment, about how him, him taking the earth in the end. It's in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, it's in the book of Daniel, which was sealed. You have fragments of this, seal, this deed throughout the scripture. You have much of it right here in the book of Revelation. Because guess what? When a seal is opened eventually, who could ever open it? All of a sudden you see a horseman of the apocalypse out of the four horsemen. And another seal, another horseman. You see what happens. So a lot of the revelation is revealing to us what's in this sealed scroll. So when you want to know what's in the sealed scroll... Read the book of Revelation. This scroll is the title deed to the earth. The Lord God already owns the earth by divine fiat, amen, by creation. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? But guess what? When it comes to humanity, we have, human, humanity has become enslaved to who? Satan. Satan has us trapped in sin. And we owe a debt to God that we can never pay. And he owes us wrath because he's just and righteous. So we're in this really precarious position where, and no one can redeem us. Except. Now it says, John says, then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So God, by his spirit, put upon John a, an understanding of how important this book was. That, this, that, that the open this book, that, that everything, all of creation held in the, was held in the balance by someone needing to open this book and open up this title, Deed. and he, So somehow John is just incredibly overwhelmed. And in the Greek, gets really strong. He begins to weep greatly. He's bawling. He's like, if you saw John, he's crying really hard because this book has to be opened. No one can open it, he thinks. Verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, And the elders, a lamb, standing as if slain. By the way, Jesus is still in his resurrected body. It's a glorified, imperishable, immortal, incorruptible body. But he still has those wounds. That's why when we take communion, we proclaim his death until he what? Comes. Comes. We don't take communion after he comes. Because we're with him. And what he did for us is always seen by us is that powerful? See, even in heaven, he sees a lamb standing as if slain. By the way, Jesus is not sitting at that point. He stood up. Why? He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Can you get into that? We have a lot of tapes on Revelation. Go check that out. (laughs) Verse 7. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the Father gave it to him, The four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. This this, this is what they're saying. Here is one that's worthy. It's Jesus. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased to God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Are you with me? Because this is the most important part. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So he takes the title deed, really, not to the earth as much as to who? Humanity. Because he purchased them. He, God, became a man, fulfilled the law, became a kinsman redeemer, hung on the tree and became cursed in our place so we don't have to be cursed. Amen. So we were, were redeemed by his blood. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads and myriads, and myriads and myriads in the Greek, uh, the biggest number they had, and thousands of thousands. So he's just trying to explain it was just like innumerable, saying with a loud voice Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What are they doing? They're worshiping Jesus. Jesus is God. Don't let a Jehovah's Witness tell you that he's just an angel and you can't worship him. He's God become flesh, God-man. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, so it's to the father and to the lamb, Jesus, be what? Blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and what? Worshipped. That's why we praise and worship Jesus. That's why we praise and worship the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Because he's not only our creator, but he's our what? Redeemer. He's our kinsman redeemer. And this book is this amazing love story, amen. And people, when they first started the book, he made them from the dust. Well, he made us somehow. Could have made us from light bulbs or some other thing if you wanted to. But it did, yeah. Well, well, how come he took part of her, he took a rib out? Well, it says her rib and some of her flesh, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then we look at the story of Eve and Adam. That's a whole picture, too, of how Jesus Christ, just like Adam had to sacrifice himself to get his wife, and he was, you know, cut open, used to be cut open on the tree. Amen. And it's, if you've been at weddings, I go through that type all the time. And it's just, from Genesis to Revelation, it's one big love story, guys. And it's mind-boggling, okay? And the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit. They can't really even understand it, you know? So they'll mock it or whatever. But I've been on both sides. I was totally demonized before I was a Christian, taken over by the wrong side. I was agnostic, you know? Then I realized, no, it's real. Satan is real, God is real, crowd to God, got saved, opened this book and pfft, showed me the spiritual war that's going on, oh, that's what's going on, that's what I was involved in. Showed me the prophecies, wow, you tell the end from the beginning and showed me that ultimately it's about a union between God and his people, Christ and his bride, metaphorically speaking, amen? And it's this incredible love story and what's amazing about this whole thing, and we'll just go to one verse and finish up with this verse. Go to Matthew thirteen forty four. Jesus explained how the kingdom of heaven works. He explained how the kingdom of heaven works. See, the potter's field is really the whole world, guys. Because guess what? Everyone who is buried anywhere is a foreigner to God, amen, who is in rebellion to God. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and did and hit again. Man, look at this treasure. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You are treasured. Jesus bought the whole field. In fact, another parable in the same chapter, Jesus says the field is the world, you know. Remember the tares and the wheat? The field is the world, okay. Well, I believe the field ultimately is the world system. Because he tasted death, it says, for everyone, Amen. And the whole world, it says, is under the power of the evil one, one, John five nineteen, But the Bible says, God so loved, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? So we are the strangers in the potter's field. He picks us up, and he takes these lumps of coal, and coal becomes what? Gold? Or he takes, or I should say diamonds, Right? Uh, coal becomes diamonds under pressure, right? Or he purifies gold with the fire. Oh, also in chapter 13, there's a parable, the pearl of great price, amen? The per- a-, a pearl starts out as an aggravating, irritating piece of sand, right? Then that oyster secretes it over and over again and turns it into a pearl. So it's not irritating anymore, but it becomes something beautiful. We were that irritant to God. A thorn in his side. But with His blood, Amen. Nacre is the name of that substance. I'll have time to get that. That's a great picture. With His blood, He makes us a pearl of great price. He dies for the field to get His treasure, and the Bible says that He will come up and snatch up His jewels, Amen. You have a choice to be a jewel for Jesus, snatched up and adorn New Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and be His bride forever. Part of that bride or the the lake of fire. I choose Jesus. I hope you choose Jesus too. Amen. He paid the highest price so you could get in. All you have to do is say yes and turn to him in repentant faith and trust the fact that he died for your sins and rose again and conquered the grave. Amen. He paid for your sins. And guess what? One day for the wicked, they will leave the county jail, so to speak, Hades, and they will stand before God and they'll be sentenced to the federal penitentiary. And then guess what? They'll be go to the lake of fire. But for those who trust Jesus and love him, the pottery, that he's the great potter, we put ourselves in his hands, amen, and he makes us like jewels. Choose Jesus, choose life, amen. The Bible says if you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Amen. Turn to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior now. Put your trust in his gospel and you'll have eternal life, amen? Praise God. Love you guys. Let's all stand up before the Lord and let's, they're gonna pass out the communion.